0: Masters in Comics In these podcasts, we will be chatting to comics creators and getting a unique insight into the comics industry Today we are talking to Barry Tomlinson Welcome, Barry Tomlinson, to the Masters in Comics podcast Um, I'd just like to begin by asking you about how you got into comics and what it was like when you started at Fleetway
1: Well, greetings I first joined Fleetway in 1961 I was doing my national service from 1956 to 1958 and got very interested in journalism while I was in the army. When I came out, I looked around for a job, but it took me about two years to find a job. I went to a magazine called The National News Agent and I wanted to get to work there, but I was rejected from there, but they told me that beginners were wanted for children's comics at Fleetway Publications. So I wrote to them, I got an interview, and uh, I was accepted. And prior to that, i had no enormous interest in comics. I read comics as a boy, but this was a new area for me to get into, and it's one which I found I was well-suited to.
0: Yeah, reading your book, um, Comic Book Hero, recently, it uh, mentions that one of the first comics you worked on, or, or, um, or, or, or pa- papers, as they were called <laughs> back then, uh, was Lion. So do you want to talk a little bit about how you got into writing?
1: Yes, well, when I first joined Fleetway, um, I was assistant to the script editor, who was a gentleman called Ken Manell, and he taught me how to write scripts, basically, and I found that I enjoyed writing scripts. Most of the script editor's job was to talk over ideas with authors, and I found that perhaps I wasn't too good at doing that, and I really wanted to work on a publication, so the management very kindly gave me a sub-editor's job online where i worked under editor bernard smith and he taught me the whole system of how to run a comic and the system he taught me was one i used throughout my career amazingly bernard lived in the same city as me st Albans, but i didn't know him prior to working there but he was a very good editor he'd launched lion and was a very experienced editor and as I say the system he he taught me was a very good one and one that I stuck with throughout my career.
0: So what was the kind of in-house environment like at at Fleetway at that time, where about in London were you based and what was the kind of setup in in the studio space?
1: Well we were um, based in New Fleetway House in Farringdon Street which is just off Fleet Street so it was very close to Fleet Street which was very exciting for me. We had a very large office on the fifth floor of a New Freeway House where Lion and Tiger shared the space. There was about 10 people in the office, half devoted to Tiger, half devoted to Lion. And I was in the Lion half learning the job and I worked on Lion for probably two and a half years.
0: And then uh, it's right to say that you moved on to Tiger after that.
1: That's right. One day a spelling mistake appeared on the front cover of Tiger and the editor, David Gregory, was not happy about that. So he called me in and said, look, I want you to transfer from Lion onto Tiger. But if you ever make a mistake on the cover again, you'll be transferred yourself.
0: <laughs> okay, so yeah, that's a fairly harsh harsh line to take, but yeah. So, was it an eye for detail that you had? Did you become known for someone who had a attention to detail?
1: Um, I hope I became known for being an ideas man. Right. Um, Bernard Smith had taught me that the basic system of being an editor, but David Gregory, he taught me that you could be an editor with a capital E. Hmm. David was a very expensive editor. He had long lunch hours, met contributors, during those lunch hours and talked, talked over the storylines. And he taught me that you could be an editor with great style. And that is something else i tried to follow throughout my career.
0: So it sounds like there was a quite a good sense of community in, in in those days, which may be somewhat lost these days with the kind of freelance nature of, of, of outsourcing almost everything.
1: Yes, it was a very small team on each publication. There were just four people, the editor, the art editor, an art assistant and a sub-editor, and all the contributors, all the writers and artists, were freelance, and they came into the office from time to time, and it was quite amazing how secret things had to be in those days. When a script came in from a writer, we always cut off his name and address from the front of the script before we sent it to the artist, because the management didn't want artists and writers to know each other, they felt that there was a danger, perhaps, of DC Thompson stealing someone if it became known who the contributors were. So it was a very secret world.
0: Yeah, there was no uh, uh, creator credits in those days, well, not not from what I remember. So when you, you moved on to Tiger, I mean, is it safe to say you were a sports fan anyway?
1: Yes, I, I was a very keen um, cricket fan and, and football to some extent. But of course, when you work on a publication which has got Roy the Rovers in it, you have to become a very strong football fan.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was obviously one of the, the most famous stories in, in Tiger, um, along with a, a host of others uh, over the years. Uh, football, cricket, base, but covering every sport, I suppose. And I think that was what was quite interesting about the variety of stories and adventure stories when you first took over as well.
1: Yes, when I first went on to it, it was half adventure stories and half sport, and one of the first things I did when I became editor of Tiger was to make it an all-sports title, and people thought maybe that was a bit of a gamble, but it paid off, and having all-sports stories proved to be very, very popular.
0: So, if we could jump forward just a little bit, how did, how did uh, Royal the Rovers uh, come to be in its own publication?
1: Roy was always the top story in Tiger, even though there were lots of other good stories in the publication, Roy was always the top one. Um, And one day the management called me in and said, we want you to produce a football comic. Tiger was going very well, so I want you to produce another comic, but entirely based on football. So that's when I suggested to the management that the new title should be called Roy of the Rovers. And first of all, they said, no, that's too long a title. But I pointed out that News of the World was equally long. So I eventually persuaded them to call the new title Roy of the Rovers. But as a precaution, when we launched it, we kept Roy of the Rovers in Tiger as well and ran two stories by different artists, by the same writer, until we discovered that Roy going into his own publication was successful. And then we gradually took Roy out of Tiger, and Tiger survived based on me by itself. So we had two very good sports titles running side by side.
0: Yeah, that's quite unusual, actually, in British comics. I think it had to have the same story and two titles running at the same time. It's something that you'd see in American comics quite a lot, where they have that kind of shared universe. But in British comics, I suppose that was something quite unique. How did you manage to, to make sure that the, the, the storylines worked in sync?
1: Well, we had the same writer, Tom Tully, yeah. writing both of the stories. We had David Skew illustrating the story in Roy Rovers, and a lady called Yvonne Hutton, mm-hmm. who drew the story in Tiger. So the storylines were slightly different, but there was a basic similar background to them, and it worked very well.
0: Around about this time, you started to write a lot of comics as well. I know that uh, you wrote uh, Johnny Cougar for The Tiger for a number of years. So how did, how did you sort of make that jump, I suppose, from editorial into, into writing scripts?
1: Well, I really liked writing and found that I could write quite easily and I was quite good at coming up with ideas for stories. So the first story I wrote regularly was Johnny Cougar. That had been started by Tom Tully in Tiger, but Tom became very busy doing other things. So I took over the writing of Johnny Cougar, which I enjoyed enormously. First of all, it was illustrated by the great John Gillett. Mm -hmm. And then when he moved on to something else, Sandy James became the artist. So I was very lucky in writing that script that I had two really good artists to illustrate the story.
0: And it ran for a number of years. I, I remember when, when I was buying Tiger quite regularly, uh, it was still in there uh, up until uh, the 80s, actually, I seem to remember.
1: I guess as Johnny would say, he good.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, how, how did you go about sustaining stories for so long? Because looking at your career, your writing career, it seems to me that your stories did seem to last a long time. So how did you maintain the momentum on a story?
1: I always kept very closely in touch with what was happening in the real world and tried to mirror what was happening there. Keep the stories up to date, change things a bit. Because, for example, in the early days of Roy the Rovers, they won just about every match that they played. And in episode one, Roy would say, right, lads, let's try and win the FA Cup this year. And you knew full well that at the end of the story, they would win the FA Cup. So we changed things where teams lost matches won matches and things happened to them off the pitch which had never been shown before for example Roy the Rovers became the first boys comic hero to get married Mm -hmm. and to become a father and those events produced an enormous amount of publicity for the title which did it an awful lot of good.
0: Yeah I mean for me it almost felt like it developed this sort of second subplot of of soap opera almost in the background.
1: Yes very much so When, when the Duke of Edinburgh visited our office, he, he said to me, this Roy of the Rovers, is it a soap opera? And that was the, really the first time I thought about it being a soap opera, but in fact yes it was, that had happened.
0: And I think as well, having um, uh, maintaining the consistency in art as well, I think uh, David drew it for about 10 years, if, if my memory uh, serves me right, And uh, so having that consistency in the art must have helped as well.
1: Oh yes, very much so, yes. And the fact that Roy had two lies, one on the pitch and one off the pitch, it needed a slightly different way of illustrating the story sometimes, but it worked very well. And uh, as I say, Roy, getting married and becoming a father, produced lots of publicity for us. When, when his wife left him in 1981, that was one of the biggest stories that we got in the media. It was on ITN Lunchtime News as a news item and on BBC News in the evening.
0: Wow, (laughs) brilliant. I mean, uh, you couldn't actually pay for that kind of publicity, I suppose. Um, So, actually, one of the other storylines that sticks out from that era to me was the Who Shot Roy Race storyline, because as a kid growing up, I was aware of, you know, Dallas and JR being shot. and How much of an influence was that?
1: Um, It was quite a big influence. Who shot JR became who shot RR. (laughs) And the writer Tom Talley and myself, he built in a lot of suspects into the story. So when Roy was shot, there was about 12 people you could choose from to find out who did it. But in the end, it was a character called Elton Blake, who had played the part of Roy the Rovers in a TV series and became very jealous of the real Roy the Rovers. So he shot him. And that was big news, of course, and uh, it was even bigger news when Roy was in a coma and we asked, well, I asked Sir Ralph Ramsey to take over the team. That again produced a lot of publicity, Uh, but Sir Ralph Ramsey, who's not perhaps the sort of character you would think would want to get involved with children's comics, was very happy to get involved with Roy the Rovers, and he appeared in the picture strip for quite a few weeks.
0: So it, it, it seems to me that you were able to not not play the media, uh, but actually just, just get them engaged with the storylines, which again didn't seem to happen very much in other stories around about that era. So, you know, how did you go about getting these stories to the press, or would they just pick up on the stories that were in the comic anyway?
1: We would send out a press release to coincide with the comic coming out. And, uh, there were a lot of people, I think, in the media at that time that had grown up reading Tiger mm-hmm. and Roy the Rovers. So that was half the battle. They knew the character, they loved the character, and were very happy to join in because I made everything sound well. I was Roy's best friend. I wasn't his editor. So we played it very, very true to life, and I think that added to the enjoyment of the storylines.
0: I do remember as well as a kid seeing a lot of photographs of of uh, the, the cardboard cutout Roy, if you want, with real stars, whether it be celebrities or footballers. So do you think that kind of helped?
1: We we think so. Yes, it, it tried. To, it helped to make Roy a little bit more true to life. We had a whole series of cutout as Roy's hairstyle changed. We had to get a new cutout <laughs> made. So I was very careful not to change his hairstyle too frequently because it would mean another expensive cutout. But we had a whole series of these full-size cutouts, and in the end, a lot of the press photographers, when they went to a football ground, took Roy with them, so that he was always available to pose for photographs.
0: Something else that, that strikes me that was quite unique at the time is it seemed to play out, relatively speaking, in real time. So you'd have it um, play out in football seasons and it'd be the summer season where they, Roy might go on tour or he might be playing for England or whatever that was. So again, was that a conscious decision to kind of almost age him in real time up to that point? Because at that point, he'd be going for a number of years anyway.
1: Yes, um, we did decide to age him, but, but when he got to a certain age, we thought it actually a better stop. <laughs> because, uh, and then it got to the stage where his children were catching him up.
0: Was our sort of legacy built in? Because it struck me as a kid that you were almost developing the next generation.
1: Yes, yes. We thought that uh, Roy's children would eventually, one of Roy's children would eventually replace him in the storyline. Right? So Roy Jr. was born in 1977. Then we showed him ageing. But unfortunately, I stopped being editor before he could become an age when he could play for Melchester Rovers And that came after my time.
0: If we talk a little bit about that, so I suppose, you know, around about that time, there was, you know, Tiger was coming to the end of its natural life, uh, unfortunately, and, and, and Roy the Rovers eventually went the same way. So did you see the market changing quite significantly?
1: Yes. Um. When I first started in comics, there was very little competition. and, and A boy receiving his comic once a week was a big thing in his life. There was no internet. There was very little television, so comics was so, so important to a boy, and when the comic came through the letterbox with the morning newspaper, there was quite often a battle between a son and a father to see who read the comic first. So it was an important secret, I think, to get the dads on your side as well, and they were quite happy to pay the paper bill to include the price of the comic.
0: Well, that brings me to my next uh, subject, actually, because I'd like to talk a little bit about The New Eagle. And I suppose that is one of these uh, comics that does have that legacy where the father buys it for the son. You know, Uh, that certainly happened uh, with me. So I wonder if you want to talk a little bit about the development of The New Eagle and how that came about.
1: Well, I was a reader of the original Eagle and I thought it was a tremendous publication. I thought the editor, Marcus Morris, did a fantastic job. And it was also interesting that for the first time i knew who the editor of the comic was because marcus morris signed himself as the editor and therefore he was a character i knew and i thought when i became an editor i should let the readers know my name so i became real to them as marcus morris had done in the original eagle Mm -hmm. so i was a great great fan of eagle and i was trying to bring it back many many times throughout my career but it wasn't until 1982 that i was able to persuade the management to bring it back and when we did bring it back i wanted to make it different and relevant for the children of 1982 rather than the 1950s and that produced a lot of criticism from the original readers who were now middle-aged because they wanted to see an exact copy of the original eagle but we wanted to produce something which was right for that era. So in the end, Dan Dare and the cutaway drawings were really the only things that survived from the original eagle.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting direction it took because for me, one of the most distinctive things, as a target audience actually, I was exactly the right age for a new eagle. For me, the um, the photo stories were, were a kind of revelation because I'd never really seen that in boys comics before. So how did they come about?
1: Well, I wanted eagle to be different. And one of the ways I thought it could be different was to have some photo stories in it that worked very well in girls' comics, but we quickly found that it was an enormous challenge to produce atomic explosions, battle scenes, and things like that in photographs. I think the photographers did a tremendous job at that time because this was the before the time of computers, so we couldn't use any computer effects. So it was sometimes very, very difficult to show the sort of scenes we wanted to see. And I found that the readers didn't really like photo stories. The reaction from them was they preferred picture strip. So after a few months, I decided that we should go back to all drawn strips, which pleased the readers, and it very much pleased all the artists who were working for us at the time, who were not particularly happy that we were having photo
0: stories in the publication yeah i mean i think Doomlord was was quite a popular photo story but that kind of worked well as a photo story and as a drawn strip that managed to to make the transition really well um i wonder if we could talk about the new dan Dare because that has an interesting background i think and and you're credited as writing the first um episode uh, of the new dan in in eagle number one um do you want to talk a little bit about the background and and, and why it ended on that um, at the time quite surprising cliffhanger? Yeah, I'm trying to remember. Did I write
1: like the first instalment? <laughs> you know more than me on that. <laughs> well,
0: you, your name's against it. Um, and 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 on the on the last page, um, it does the gravestone of 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 the original Dan who died in in 1950. So there's a setup there that's like, well, how can The original Dan have died before his original comics run. The Mekon kind of scratches his head and doesn't quite understand why, along with the readers. So I was just wondering, was there a a kind of background to why the story was going to go in this direction?
1: It was, again, because it wanted to be different. I can remember now, as you were talking, that I did write the first instalment to set it up. Yeah. Oh, the old memories going, you know. (laughs) But then eventually John Wagner and Pat, Pat Mills took over the story, and Jerry Emerton was doing the artwork. So we had a very good team working on it, and uh, so good in fact that I'd forgotten I wrote the first one. Shame <laughs> on me.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, it definitely took off, I think. But for me as a, as a reader, I mean, I loved uh, Jerry's work and, and Oliver Frey did a couple of uh, fill-in episodes as well. Um, but for me, it really hit his stride when Ian Kennedy took over the artwork. Do you want to talk about how you commissioned Ian? Um...
1: Yes, I was very lucky that when I was looking around for another artist to draw Dan Dare, Ian was recovering I think from a car accident and didn't have any work on at the time. So when I approached him he was happy to say yes to Dan Dare which pleased me, it pleased him and it pleased the readers because he's Produced a very very popular version of Dan Dare.
0: Yeah, I mean the fully painted artwork and, and I think with the way that Pat took the the direction of, of the strip as well was uh, was quite a surprising direction I think for, for a reader or maybe for the readers of the original as well. I mean I thought that uh, initial run um, was was actually fantastic and I think it spun off into. I think you came back to writing it after uh, it went into letterpress. Is that correct?
1: Yes, I wrote it for, I think, probably about six months and really enjoyed it. And the story stayed at number one with the popularity, so I didn't do any harm to the story. But uh, one day I was called into the management and my script of Dan Dare was criticized very heavily because I'd started a new adventure and I hadn't included Dan in the first episode. And this was something that happened with the original Eagle. They quite often started a story and didn't feature Dan until episode two. So I thought that was a very good idea because you're building up the suspense before Dan appears. Mm -hmm. But when I did that, (laughs) it didn't go down at all well with management. And also the story I was writing at the time was set on earth and they said, no, 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 Dan Dare is a space adventurer. You shouldn't set stories on earth even though in the original Ego they had been. So I was taken off the story, much to my dismay.
0: Yeah, that's but, a shame. That's a shame because, you know, I mean, it, I think it takes time to uh, to develop the character. And I always felt like the new Dandere was always a few issues away from another reinvention. He seemed to get reinvented quite a lot, actually, I think.
1: Yes, it, it, it's a bit like Doctor Who, really, isn't it?
0: Yeah. Exactly. So when it went to when it went to letterpress, obviously the production values kind of did go down slightly. So it wasn't on the glossy paper anymore, and the color work was done in a a, a more um uh, basic way, I suppose. Um, but for for many readers, that era of the New Eagle was actually the golden age because because of the, the lack of limitations on the budget, it meant that the stories could go off in more uh, dynamic and, and more uh, um, uh, exciting directions.
1: Yeah, that's very true. I mean, for an editorial person, when the comics switched to letterpress, it was always very, very disappointing. Yeah. yeah. The gossip paper and the, the nice colour was always good for editorial people and for the readers, but uh, it was a disappointment when it happened, but it was a case of finances and the comics were suffering, so
0: their profit had to be changed, and we had to switch to letterpress. But I think that's interesting that no matter the quality of the paper, what seemed to happen was the quality of the stories uh, went up a notch. And I think you could maybe see the same thing about um, 2000 AD at the time is that it may be printed on what people would call bog paper, but, um, but actually it still held in a high regard.
1: Yes, I think. I've always been very lucky as an editor that I had very top class writers and artists working for the titles. I think it was a golden era for contributors. and The artists, particularly, when you look back at their work, it was so good. And it's a great shame that their work wasn't credited at the time.
0: So something that I I always found amusing as a kid was when I saw the words um, big news inside readers. Uh, which usually <laughs> it usually meant one of two things. Usually a merger. Um, so one of the major mergers I remember uh, was Tiger going into uh, the new Eagle. But that seems quite an equitable merger compared to some of the other mergers that they'd been in the past. Um, was that an editorial decision to keep it keep the balance there? Yes, it was. I
1: mean, I, I was in charge of both titles. so I was able to arrange the merger in a good way that the balance was right and I think that was a good merger. It was a very disappointing time for me because Tiger was always my favourite title and I worked on Tiger for so many years and when we lost that title in 1985 it was a very disappointing time so I was determined that the merger with Eagle should produce a very good title.
0: Yeah and it seemed to be sustained for quite a long time. the, The masthead, Uh, I remember it had uh, equitable sizing of the logo, which is quite important, I think. The only giveaway being that eagle was the first name and tiger. So, you know, the cynical readers might think, well, maybe down the line, you know, tiger might get phased out. But what intrigued me at that point is that stories like Billy's Boots took a a slightly more dramatic turn and uh, Death Wish, which which you wrote, uh, also changed direction. So, again... How conscious a fact were you to change it to to the target audience?
1: Yeah, we were changing it. We thought that target audience, but times were changing, so we thought the storylines could be perhaps a little bit stronger. I think you you mentioned Billy's Boots, and that's a story that we should talk about because it was brilliantly written by Fred Baker, superbly drawn by John Gillett, and prior to that by Mike Weston. And Billy was just a simple story about a boy with a pair of what he thought were magic boots that used to belong to an old-time soccer star, and when he wore them, he thought he'd play well, and when he didn't wear them, he didn't play well. Basic storyline, but it worked enormously, and Billy was always first or second in the ratings from the readership. And I think a great tribute to Fred Baker for writing such a brilliant script, in fact, wrote some wonderful scripts for the comics.
0: Yeah, it seemed to go on uh, for for years, which again was amazing to sustain that quality and, you know, the creativity over the years as well. In fact, I have an old uh, uh, Swedish friend uh, who told me that it even continued beyond the British run in Sweden.
1: It did, yes. Yes, I can remember John Geddes telling me that he was doing covers for that publication So it was very rewarding to know that it was popular not only in this country, but in other places in the world.
0: And it even managed to survive the the merger. So I remember in the New Eagle, suddenly uh, Billy was playing less football and he was kind of on the run. Uh, He was in a children's home and his his gran had fallen ill and then eventually went back into Roy the Rovers and ran for another number of years in in there. So the, the fact that it ran, I think it was something like 22 years or something like that quite a long time anyway um that it ran um and the same with Death Wish I suppose do you want to talk a little bit about Death Wish and and how that came about and how you changed the direction of that strip over the years
1: yes well it it first appeared in Speed I was looking up story ideas for this new publication which was devoted to Speed and Death Wish was one of the ideas I came up with it worked quite nicely, I thought, when I wrote the script, but Varnio, a Spanish artist, took over illustrating the story and his artwork was absolutely brilliant and brought the story to life. So it was always a pleasure to write scripts, knowing that the end product would be really good, thanks to Barnio's artwork.
0: And uh, when, I remember when it moved into Ego, it took a kind of supernatural turn.
1: It did, yes. Um, th- this followed... I think, Scream happening, so we we gave it a little bit more of a supernatural feel to it. But strangely enough, I can very clearly remember the Death Wish stories in the early days when it was in Speed and then in Tiger, but the later ones (laughs) have dropped out of my memory banks totally, and, and although I look at it from time to time, I can't remember much about the supernatural aspects of it, and I think perhaps it was better in its original form.
0: It certainly seems like a format that, that worked in many different ways, and I do notice that um, Rebellion, who now have the rights of bringing back um, the character. Uh, I don't know what your thoughts on that are.
1: Well, I think it's a great compliment to all the people involved with these stories, that they're being brought back at this time. Um, it's a very good thing. Sometimes it's a bit frustrating looking on and seeing what's happening, but... Uh, it's, as I say, a great compliment to the team that produced the titles originally.
0: So you, you spoke actually there about Scream, and that's something that, that, that always interested me as a kid because of the short run, but the quality of the storylines in there. So I, I think you, you have spoken quite a bit about, about, about Scream in the past, but I wonder if you just want to fill us in on, on your take on it and, and what kind of why it didn't actually last the distance.
1: Yes, I think it deserved a longer run, really. I'd always been editor of publications, which are very much apparent by, but suddenly I was asked to produce a title, which really wouldn't be apparent by, perhaps parents would frown upon it, so I had to try and get a balance. I didn't, I didn't want it to be a horror comic, but at the same time, I wanted it to be a bit scary, which is why they came up with the cover lines, not for the nervous, hmm. and just when you thought it was safe to sleep in the dark. So we've tried to bring a bit of humour into it as well, not make it too strong. But I think the fact that people are still talking about Scream now, even though it had a very, very short run, is, is a, again a compliment of what we produced. But it was a very difficult title to produce. I took the, with the managing editor, we went down to our senior executive to show him the first issue, and he ripped it to pieces, much to our surprise. This had never happened to me before. And I think perhaps the management was a little bit nervous of what we were producing, so we had to change a few things, well, quite a lot of things in the first issue. We thought we'd got that out of the way, but when we went back with issue two to the same manager, it was once again ripped to pieces. And Gradually, the publication became later and later, and then the strike came along, which took quite a few of the titles off the bookstores for a while. And that was when the management decided that they wouldn't bring screen back. I think they were happy with the fact that it would disappear
0: because of the strike and uh, they could live happily ever after. Yeah, it seems there's always been a kind of fear of horror comics and, and uh, you know, uh, in the US especially they had all the trouble with the comics code and, you know, in the UK we kind of escaped that, I suppose, but I think there was a paranoia about, you know, scaring the kiddies and, you know, upsetting parents and, you know, and maybe, maybe nowadays um, you could have got away with a bit more.
1: Yeah, I think so, but even at that time I can't recall any letters of complaint from parents
0: at all?
1: Yeah, that's um, interesting. Of course, I think we've, we've got that balance right. We weren't making it too scary.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's definitely true. I mean, it was um, it was very well produced, and and the the talent again, the writers and the artwork seemed to be above above par. You know, um, so it certainly wasn't a quality issue. Uh, obviously, it was uh, some interference maybe that you could have done without. It. <laughs>
1: Yes, it was was a very difficult one to edit.
0: Can you tell us about your time as group editor?
1: I was made group editor just after I produced Roy the Rovers, a separate title. I was editor of Tiger, editor of Roy the Rovers. And so I campaigned for me to have an editor on each of those titles and me to become group editor, which means I could get involved with the PR side much more and also the storylines, and that that worked quite well. So I had two titles, first of all, and then gradually other things were added to it.
0: So uh, there was a lot of new publications coming out around about, um, you know, mid to to the end of the 80s. Um, One that sticks out in mind and one that's kind of relevant at the moment, I suppose, seeing as Rebellion have just announced that they're going to start reprinting um, some of it, is Wildcat. So uh, how, how did that come about?
1: They asked me to produce a new publication with a science fiction theme. So I went away and thought up the idea of having really one storyline going all the way through the comic. So I introduced characters like Ketan McGee and Lona and Joe Alien into the basic storyline of the title. And once again, I was really lucky to have some really good class contributors to the title. And I think Wildcat was one of the best things that I produced. Again, it it came at a time when competition for comics was very severe and uh, it didn't have a very long run. But again, it's a great compliment that they're deciding to bring it back again.
0: Yeah, I think um, I recently read the Fleetway Files um, and uh, I think in there there's some fascinating um, synopsis and character development and sketches. I know that Ian did quite a lot of development in the characters as well. But it seemed like you had a really good sense of the whole structure of that whole comic, which again was quite unusual at the time.
1: Yeah, I think I'd had a lot of experience in children's comics by that time. And I think Wildcat was the, the end part of all that experience. And I was so disappointed when it had a very, very short run because I think it was worth a, worth a, a much longer run because I thought it was pretty good.
0: It did continue in some form, I suppose, when it went into the Eagle, when it merged with the Eagle. So the stories went on for, you know, a year or so, I suppose, after that, before the next merger came along. But uh, at least there was some longevity there and and the stories kept going. And did you keep keep in touch with with the stories there? Were you still writing um, any of it at that point?
1: Um, Yes, I think I'm still writing um, Loner. Yeah. Um, but I think that was the only one from there I was still doing. Yeah. But Loner was another nice one to, to write because, once again, the artwork was, was absolutely brilliant by David Pugh, yeah. who's an artist who I think is perhaps underrated in a lot of ways because he, he drew Loner, very high-class artwork, lots and lots of detail in it, and he also, of course, worked down for a while. Uh, drew Dan for a while. Yeah. Which, again, I, I did
0: love his Dandare artwork. Yeah, I remember it was all um, fully painted artwork again on a weekly schedule, and um, that's that always intrigued me uh, about the kind of turnaround on on the comics and how you managed to turn around all these publications on a weekly schedule and control all these moving parts. I mean. What was your sort of organisational process?
1: <laughs> Looking back, I'm not really sure. <laughs> People um, ask me questions now about things that happened in the comics. And sometimes I can't remember because there was so much material going through our hands yeah. each week. We, we were churning out various titles. One time, I must have had about perhaps ten titles going on, as well, as annuals and holiday specials. And so many pages, so many stories, but it's a job to remember every detail of every story. But it it was there. And I think they kept a fairly high quality considering the amount of stuff we were producing.
0: Yeah, it never seemed to miss its deadline, which I think is interesting. And there was very few, from my memory anyway, uh, fill-in artists, you know, when things went wrong, I think. I do remember an episode of Death Wish where it explained in the editorial that an episode had gone missing and another artist had to draw it at the last minute.
1: Your memory's better than mine. (laughs) I was always very hot on deadlines. My publications always went to the printer on time, with the exception of Scream, of course.
0: Yeah. Do you think nowadays, though, there's less of a a weekly comic market, really? It's, uh, you know, the Beano, 2000 AD, you know, are the kind of the ones that are still hanging on to that weekly schedule. Uh, and do you think it's just the way that people engage with the uh, the medium of comics now that is, is in a slightly different way and the delivery is different, much like TV's changed, you know, where you get things on demand. Do you think that's had an impact as well?
1: Yeah, but perhaps people can have comics on demand as well. Yeah. I'm <clears throat> Talking of deadlines, I, I can remember one of the great problems we had was the story called Hotshot Hamish. Mm-hmm. Which was drawn by an artist called Chiafino who was from Argentina. And during the Falklands conflict, we had a great problem with how to get the artwork from him and how to get the scripts to him. So what we did, we had the scripts translated, then sent to Brazil. We sent them to Italy first of all, then they were sent from Italy to Brazil, and then from Brazil to Argentina, and the artwork was the reverse pro- process, sent from Argentina to Brazil, to Italy, and then to us. But we didn't lose any issues of Hotshot Hamish, despite that. It was a very difficult time for that particular story, and which think- again was, was written by Fred Baker, and uh, another very, very good football story.
0: Yeah, I think uh, he was also drawing um, Mighty Mouse in Ryder Rovers around about the same time.
1: Yes, he yes, was a character who had a very good sense of humour. It was extraordinary that Hotshot Hamish was the story of a Scottish hero, was written by an Englishman and drawn by someone from Argentina. (laughs) They worked very well together as a team, and uh, it was only after about six or seven years of working together on that story that they met for the first time in my office in London. It was a, a great moment when they met each other.
0: Yeah it was a great, I remember it fondly actually, I, I loved the depictions of Scotland in that in that strip and uh, it actually struck a chord you know, so they were definitely doing something right.
1: <laughs> yes he would stick Mac in front of most people's names I think.
0: <laughs> actually speaking of, of Scotland I just wonder whether during all, all that time at, at, at Fleetway and IPC that you were keeping an eye on your rivals from Dundee?
1: Yes, I always liked to keep an eye on what was going on. And I can remember one time when we were producing three or four titles that our circulation exceeded the DC Thompson circulation for the first time. And I was quite triumphant about that. I sent a memo to everybody to the effect.
0: Did you ever actually do any work for DC Thompson's?
1: No, I didn't. And I didn't meet anybody from DC Thompson. I would love to have met some of the editorial staff from there. But they've done very well, I think, with, with, with their merchandising, and that, that is very, very strong. I think Fleetway was quite weak on merchandising, but Daisy Thompson has certainly done a tremendous job on that.
0: Well, actually, speaking of that, I suppose near the end of your career at IPC, uh, you moved more into licensed comics, which seemed to start to kind of take over the... The newsstands, if you want, at the time. So, how did that come about? Did these licensors come and approach you, or did you approach them? You know, I'm thinking about comics like Supernatural's or the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, uh, these kind of titles.
1: Well, I think they approached um, IPC and said, Would you produce a comic for us? And the first I would know about is when I got a member saying you ought to produce a comic called Mask or Ring Raiders or Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles. They they were generally not too successful. Um, We did Mask, um, we did Ring Raiders, and then we did Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles, which was a magnificent success. I think the circulation went up to about 900,000 at one time.
0: The name change actually there, I don't know, because I called it Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which is the American version, but in the UK, I forgot, they renamed it Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles.
1: That's right, we had to change everything to that, Um, change the logo and so on and so forth. But I think it won an award for being launch of the year, um, Turtles, but I didn't even know about that as editor. It was only after the event that I discovered it had been an award ceremony and uh, I was never asked to be a part of it.
0: So it's quite a change in direction, I suppose, going from, uh, you know, um, in-house created... Content to working with licensors and you know the um the, the the brand
1: guidelines that they have.
0: How how much leeway did you get with the people who owned the brands?
1: Very little. We had to show the scripts to them first of all, which they would go through. Normally they went through okay, but when it came to the artwork, we had to show them the artwork, and they looked at every individual picture as if it was a poster. They insisted that every picture was exactly right and it took quite a long time for us to educate them that with a picture strip the artist hasn't got time with too much detail when he's got 16 17 18 pictures to draw in every episode so eventually they they got round to accepting that but in the early days it was very very difficult they asked for many many alterations
0: Yeah, that could be quite frustrating from the creative point of view when you've got so many hoops to
1: jump through. After we did Turtles, there was another comic called Toxic Crusaders, which everyone was convinced was going to be just a bigger hit as Turtles. But that, again, only lasted a very few issues. That was in 1992. Um, We put a lot lot of work into that, but the toy, toy line didn't
0: seem to work. So it had a very short life. So uh, uh, after all those years uh, at Fleetway IPC, what's your abiding memory? What was your favourite title? If you could, if you could draw it down to a, to a favourite,
1: well, I think Tiger was always my favourite, and Roy the Rover's favourite character, of course. I think Wildcat was one which I was very pleased with, very proud of. So they were the main ones, and when. I was taken off the comics because I had an idea once that towards the end of the comics life that I should go freelance, take all the comics with me and produce them as freelance with the editors going freelance as well and selling them back to IPC and that would save the company an awful lot of money. And that new system worked very well because the circulations were going down a bit, but we could produce the titles much more cheaply. And it it lasted about 18 months, that new idea, before a new management came in and they decided they wanted comics produced in-house. So having taken all the comics out with me, I saw them all go back. And not being involved with the copyright, of course, I lost all the titles at that time. That was around about 1989.
0: So that leads us into um, your newspaper strip, Scorer.
1: Yes. I was very fortunate. At the moment I lost the comics, the Daily Mirror came to me and asked me to produce a new football story. So I came up with the idea of Scorer, which was a story of a young footballer, a bit like Roy the Rovers, but someone who was younger and had more freedom to do things on and off the pitch. And that story lasted six days a week for 22 years in the mirror. So that filled a nice space after the comics. And uh, Score was a bit spicy, he had lots of girlfriends. So it, it was, who could do things that were the robes could, and that was great fun.
0: So it's almost like coming full circle, I suppose, in, in your career. Did you, did you approach the uh, scripting of the, the daily newspaper strip in a, in a different way? I mean, did you have to plan it out quite far in advance? Did it Was it topical? you know what was the kind of process like compared to doing you know the editorial and weekly comics?
1: Yeah, it was always topical, um, when there was a World Cup going on, school would be involved in it in some way and uh, the FA Cup final would be on FA Cup final day, Christmas would be at Christmas and it was something that we couldn't always do in the comics which went always went to the printer about six weeks before publication date. Often we had to produce three or four versions of every instalment so that the mirror could actually drop in one which was most relevant to the actual football result.
0: Do you think there's ever a chance of scorer being collected because the nature of, of uh, daily comics I suppose is a lot of people might miss the content and they're not often reprinted.
1: It would be very nice if score was reprinted. I always thought it would look good in book form but whether some of the Slightly spicy contents and the pin-up pictures which were in the strip may perhaps not be quite suitable for today's audience.
0: Or possibly even more so.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, well, I think perhaps things are a little bit more proper now. I think we gave the Mirror a few headaches at times on how much the heroine in the story revealed herself.
0: And it was, again, it was uh, John uh, Gillat and um, David Squee who were the main artists on that? I think.
1: Yes, um, Barry Mitchell was the first artist, yep. and then John Gillett took over from him, and then David Skew took over from him, and then David Pugh did the colouring for the strip. So it was very much a reunion for the old-time comic contributors.
0: So it must have been a shame when that eventually came uh, to an end. Again, was that? I take it that wasn't your decision. Uh, I suppose the. the there was a big cull uh, of, of uh, originated newspaper strips.
1: Yes, I think it was a budget thing at the end of the day. And uh, we had to end it fairly quickly, which was a shame because I thought that was a story which was developing as real life football developed and it could have gone on really forever.
0: Well, I mean, it, it's kind of the point has been proven, I suppose, uh, as in um, that um, Rebellion or bringing back Roy of the Rovers imminently. And I've actually started a a teaser in Match of the Day magazine, which coincided with the start of the World Cup, a sort of three-panel teaser of what's to come. Have you had any uh, insider info on that? Have you seen the strip so far, the reinvention of of Roy?
1: Yes, I've seen the strip. And I had to think to myself, let's go back to when you relaunched Eagle. You had a lot of criticism from the original readers, but you were producing an Eagle for that time. yeah, And it's the same thing with this new Roy the Robustrip is being produced for today's audiences. And there might be a lot of people who read the original Roy, who don't like the new look character. But as I say, it's produced for today's readership and I understand it's proving to be very popular.
0: Yeah, it's exactly the same argument. I suppose you had with the the new Dan there. You know, you can't. It's really difficult to please both audiences. And you know, from from one point of view, you've got a nostalgia market, which I suppose I'm that I'm that category. But I totally see the rationale behind the new version because I am not that target audience, really.
1: Yes, I think there's a place for both Roy's, I mean, by is have this new roy, new look roy in new adventures. The old Roy, the old dimensions, could still be part of things. I
0: think. Yeah, definitely, definitely agree with that. So, um, probably just about good to wind up there. But i just wanted to ask you what's, uh, what's next on on the agenda, uh, for you. What what do you how do you pass the days these these days? I know you've written two, uh, very successful and interesting books. Is there anything else that you're planning?
1: Well, I've, I've written. Real Roy the Rover stuff, which is a story of Roy the Rover's career, and the other book was Comic Book Hero, which is about all the other comics I've edited, both available now, folks. <laughs> and I'm now, I'm now working on a third book, which is my life story in general. So that's great fun, and I have great fun on Twitter talking to all the fans of the original comics, and uh, that's very good for me to keep in touch with people who were readers of the original titles but have now grown to an ancient age, but I still remember what we produced for them.
0: Great. Well, thanks very much for your time, Barry. It's been a pleasure uh, to talk to you.
1: It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Barry. (laughs) I <laughs> do